And that's when kids really get engaged is when they understand and see what the inequities are in terms of where the air quality is better, where the air quality is worse, and why that is. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast. We are excited to have with us Katie Isaac Ginsberg, who is the founder and executive director of the Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation, or SELF, I believe, C-E-L-F. So welcome, Katie, and we are thrilled to have you with us. Thank you, Karen. I'm thrilled to be here. So wait a minute. If we were in, if we were in Ireland, would it be Kelf instead of SELF? Yeah, you're right. If it was in Ireland, sure. <laughs> So I guess the first question is, can you explain what Children's Environmental Literacy Foundation is? I would love to. It is a professional development organization. We are a not-for-profit based in New York in Westchester County with operations that recently expanded to Houston, Texas. We've been doing work with K-12 schools, primarily teachers, but also with administrators and students since 2003, uh, when sustainability was a very new term and new concept, certainly in the field that we're in, in K-12 education. And in the early days, that term brought up a lot of quizzical looks on people's faces because they sort of went straight to, oh, you mean recycling? And then that opened the door to a much larger conversation that we can chat about later in this conversation. Um, But we are what we call small but mighty group of staff. We are a team of eight with six employees in New York and two in Texas. And our work is primarily focused on helping teachers who are passionate about bringing sustainability into core curriculum, regardless of what subject area they teach, to help the next generation be more prepared with ways of thinking about how we're connected to the environment, how we're connected to each other, and what they can do as Earth citizens, as being active, engaged, and knowledgeable about how stuff actually works in the world. So it it is a broader way of looking at what has been traditionally conceived of as environmental education. Sustainability is looking at things like our economic systems, what drivers there are to support or uh, supplant economic systems. And it's also really about how we function as societies, our cultural habits, our behaviors, um, things that will either connect to or dismantle our ecosystems, which of course are the things that um, provide us with life, sustenance, and well-being. So I'm curious, I'm I'm reading your your, uh, biography on your website, but how did you get started? Like, so you're, you founded this organization. What was kind of the catalyst to make you decide that you wanted to support teachers and helping them integrate this sustainability into teaching? Yeah. So you might note from my biography, I don't really 
honestly remember which one that <laughs> that that is what <laughs> yeah. what part of my twisted life that shows but um the basics are that i am the child of two educators i am not myself a formal educator but the topic of pedagogy was one that was often discussed at our dinner table definitely not from the k12 classroom perspective my dad was a professor of piano and music at northwestern university and my mother is a lifetime, lifelong pianist and piano teacher as well. So their conversations were a lot about piano, but uh, as I said, you know, really focusing on different techniques and different ways of thinking about teaching. And it didn't occur to me until many years later just how much those conversations influenced my appreciation for teachers. I myself had a handful of teachers in my own K-12 experience that I remember, I think about, and I know now in hindsight why I remember them. And that's so much related to how those teachers, you know, really sort of got out of the box and got us out of the classroom and in some cases had us reading poetry under trees or um, looking at the canal that was near our river and learning different ways of assessing water quality by taking tests of that water and things that were really kind of real. And then I went into marketing very early on in my career. And one of my first large clients was Unilever. And so a lot of consumer products, specifically detergent, which sounds so exciting. I mean, it's a really sexy product. Well, yeah, there's a story how you got from pitching detergent to sustainability, because there's a disconnect there in my head. It's almost as big a disconnect as the decision for a sustainability organization to decide to expand to Houston. Because uh, <laughs> I got to tell you, if you would have said, guess where we're moving next? We This podcast would go for three hours before I said, oh, Houston, that's the place to go. <laughs> yes. That, good. Good point. Yes. Yeah, so there, I'll... I'll I'll try to get to the nexus there. So Unilever, detergents, yes, but Unilever was unique because Unilever is a European company. And when I was working on this very exciting detergents campaign, um, as an account manager, we were required to learn the R&D of the products that we were creating campaigns for. And so that actually brought me across the river to New Jersey to the R&D factory that was talking about betaine and sulfates and parabens and all this stuff that definitely was not in my high school or college chemistry class. But um, to me, because of my semi-science brain, it was interesting because they were talking about how some of these surfactants and other ingredients that were in the U.S. product had been banned in the EU for years. And so that brought up a big question mark for me, like, why? why? Why do we have these two different formulas? And I can't, I honestly remember who in the company explained to me that these, these ingredients had polluted the rivers and waterways in Europe. And so they took them off the market. 
And it kind of became another thought bubble for me, like, well, okay, we have rivers, we have lakes. And right. I was going to say, well, but of course it's okay in the United States. <laughs> I mean, it's perfectly no, fine. It's, it's okay. It's okay That's in right. Jersey. Oh, true. Hey, I'm in Jersey right now. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Uh, no. Um, anyway, so that, that, that sort of stuck with me for a while. And then I went on, finished the campaign. And then another... I guess the next seminal aha moment for me was much later when I had my first child and he was already in fourth grade and he came home on Earth Day that year, three young kids and the oldest came home on Earth Day and said, wow, that was the single greatest day of school I had ever had in my life. And this is a kid who was like happy all the time, love school, love, love school. So for him to say, Above and beyond what he normally loved about school was really interesting. And so I'm like, why was this the greatest day that you've ever had in school? He said, well, mom, they took us out of class and they gave us this really cool assignment. We had to be detectives to find out what all the environmental impact areas in our school were. Like, what do you mean? What's an environmental impact area? It's like, well, you know, you go into the bathrooms and you have to do sink checks and toilet checks, and then you have to go outside and you have to look for trash. And there's all the problems in the cafeteria where people aren't recycling properly and yada, yada, yada. And he went on and on. And it was like this kid who who was always happy was just over the moon with having this power to become what he described as a detective who didn't have to sit in his desk all day long, um, but was learning something that actually really, really mattered, not only to him, but to his classmates who then came over the subsequent days and were all talking about this really cool experience they had in school. A couple weeks passed and he had been our greatest, you know, household environmental police for the for, for the time being. And then they stopped talking about all these really cool things in the school and went back to their, however they teach. And it was very eye-opening to me as a parent to see how my kid went from this sort of ecstatic empowerment to, you know, okay, yeah, school's good. And Stopped really talking much about the, all these things they had learned on this one single day. And it was this kind of epiphany, like reading the papers at the time and, and having kids with allergies and knowing a lot of other families that had kids with either, you know, learning challenges or health issues and starting to put pieces together as a parent in terms of you know, what are we doing with our food and products and, you know, early day thinking about organics and uh, products that we were using on ourselves and, and, and for our kids. And it occurred to me that learning about these things once a year on Earth Day probably wasn't going to cut it for this next generation to be educated on topics that were only increasing in frequency and in severity And it seemed like, you know, if these topics could be integrated in 
the core curriculum as opposed to once a year on Earth Day or the special assembly with the endangered species that all the kids love, but then it, you know, comes and goes. And so too does the learning and discussion and exploration of some of these incredibly important issues, but also opportunities. It just wasn't going to be enough. So that sort of set me off on this nose to the grindstone research for about 18 months to learn what other schools in other countries and in other states were doing to really bring the topic of environmental education into, like I said, the core curriculum so that it was part and parcel of what kids are getting on a daily basis, not once a year not a handful of times in a after-school green club or a special assembly. An old friend of mine used to refer to them as the environmental puppet show. I mean, not 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 to you know diminish anything that's been done in the past because there's been plenty of amazing programs and still are that are extracurricular. But just knowing the direction that our world is going um, and this predates really the mass media um, coverage of climate change. This is before Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth and before mass masses knew of the United Nations conferences that addressed climate change. This is really before you know, climate change and, and serious environmental issues were in the public, you know, in the forefront of public media. Hence, the look that I got sometimes from people when I started talking about sustainability, which is what I learned from this period of research was really a strategic approach to going in and being something that could be woven across different disciplines and not reside solely in the sciences or solely in a high school environmental science class which at the time was where it was. <laughs> yeah, let me, because that's actually a question I wanted to ask you to jump from there, which is, can you provide maybe like just like a case study or a story? Now, selfishly, because I'm a high school teacher, I want you to talk about a high school example, but feel free to go wherever you want to go with this, about how you did that, because I find that intriguing, because you're right. I mean, typically, not only just Earth Day, but whenever we hear about some sort of anything in terms of environmental learning, then it gets passed off to the science teacher. So can you share a case story or a case study about when you've worked with a high school and how you've brought this idea of sustainability education across different disciplines? I yeah, sure. That's a, and that's a that's a great question and one that sometimes we get directly and other and other times more indirectly when we're working with a school that's pursuing what we call whole school transformation or whole systems change. Um which is really one of the most powerful ways to approach this challenge, but also opportunity. I always kind of like to look at this as an opportunity more than a challenge, to be honest, because it's more inspiring. And it really is about a different way of thinking, not the same way of thinking, but better or with Band-Aids. But getting to your question, Tim, in high school, a few examples come to mind. And actually one is a multidisciplinary team of high school teachers who came to our summer institute about 10 years ago. They had a science department chair who was really interested in pursuing 
a sustainability certificate program that would be recognized by the New York State Regents or the New York Board of Education as a way for high school students to pursue a track throughout their four years and graduate with a certificate in sustainability. And the way that she and I and our organization evolved this concept was by identifying teachers in different disciplines to participate for the five-day summer intensive that our organization was offering that summer, as we do every year, to work together and look at a few different topics that they could collaborate on. So for example, they looked at green architecture as one topic that could be covered across English, math, science, social studies. And they worked together to identify different standards, New York State standards, because this was a public school, that would address and support ideas that were connected to a green architecture lesson, or really it was a unit. It was several weeks long. And so green architecture was one topic that was covered in freshman year and sort of through this through the various lenses of these core disciplines. In English, the teacher was having her students read um, research and interpret- interpreting that type of engineering um, writing and also doing engineering writing. So practicing research and also the, a different type of writing than perhaps fictional or first-person writing. In social studies, they were looking at where different types of structures were built and why, and explored topics like brownsfields and other topics that are related to environmental justice issues, looking at history of redlining, and again, connecting to the social study standards of that grade level. In math, you can imagine, you know, this is architecture. So they're measuring different angles, learning different math concepts by applying them to the topic of architecture. And in science, they were looking at things like airflow and product materials, what the composites were made of, and connecting that as well to this topic of green engineering and what makes for a building that is sustainable and is healthy. So that, that's one example of a topic that they selected that could be used as an interdisciplinary topic. And there were probably six others like that that offered the opportunity for interdisciplinary learning, which, Tim, you as a high school teacher would appreciate how unusual it is for high schools to have interdisciplinary opportunities for teaching and learning since they're typically fairly siloed at that high school level. And so this this particular high school um, in New Rochelle, New York, developed and actually succeeded in having a sustainability certificate program approved. It was open to any student that was interested in pursuing it. They weren't required to, but it was so well thoughtfully designed and a great model for other schools to follow. So do they still have it? I don't know what's happened in the past year since so many things have, who knows. But as far as I know, they do. 
Um, right. Yeah. And the science chair who initiated the program has since retired. And that's often something um, that is of concern to schools where there's, you know, one particular administrator or one teacher who's the champion of sustainability. And then that person either retires or moves to a different school. And then sometimes things fall apart, like gardens, garden programs, you know, um, and that's something that we often are pulled in to help support either before the person is left or after, which was actually the case with a school in Brooklyn where they had this amazing teacher who had started a garden program for the school and had had his students actually help move <laughs> cement pieces and sort of green a brown space that was completely unusable. And they were so empowered by that whole experience because the garden became something for them to learn from, for them to literally eat from, and then to turn into a community space where they sold the the fruit and the herbs from the garden and were able to make some money for their school. So that was amazing. Um, and then that teacher moved to Africa. <laughs> so he, he was not really conveniently located to help sort of transition the amazing program that he he started. And um, the principal remembered that he had worked with self to put together a curriculum that was connected to this garden. And she asked us to come back and sort of, you know, regenerate the work that was started there and provide some training for the colleagues who were interested in taking his legacy forward. So that, that was really gratifying. So are teachers reaching out to you or schools reaching out to you or is it kind of a mix or are you act actively seeking schools to partner with or all of the above? All of the above, you know, there's like, we can't get this work done fast enough. <laughs> um, but it's also the kind of work that at its most transformative is not something that's one and done. It's not something that's quick at all. It's really a lot of reflection, a lot of quiet time. Our, our summer institute that I mentioned before is designed not just for, you know, um, teachers to experience content experts presenting on topics that are of interest to these teachers, but it's a lot of supported work time and time for them to just chat together as colleagues and peers. A lot of the best work that comes out of our workshops with teachers is from peer-to-peer -peer sort of learning community style work. But to answer your question, we have a lot of schools that reach out to us uh, at a institutional level, particularly schools that are looking to make that um, sort of whole systems change. One of the more recent districts that did that is in Warwick, New York, where the assistant superintendent, and this is kind of, I guess, kudos to Google and to our SEO that we didn't even realize we had at the time. So about eight years ago, I got a call in August, and it was the assistant superintendent of the Warwick Valley Public Schools saying they had a grant, um, I think they had an EPA grant, to support energy efficiency and going solar. And as the assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction, 
he immediately recognized this teaching and learning opportunity that wasn't necessarily part of the grant, although he did have to reference how the school was going to approach connecting teaching and learning with all these, you know, the solar field that they were installing and some of the other measures that they were taking to make their district green. So he called and said, hey, I found you through a Google search and I see you're practically in our backyard. What do you guys do with teachers and professional development? So that sort of set us off on this path. And then fast forward three years, we'd been working with the school over the summer, during the academic year, with teams of teachers from kindergarten through 12th grade, and they ended up with a phenomenal sequenced, scaffolded sustainability curriculum map, which is a testament to the assistant superintendent and all the teachers that were, were part of this work that will take this district forward into you know decades ahead. So you talk about the workshops and the, the summer institutes and things like that you are doing. Um, do you actually create curriculum or are you instead kind of working with their own standards and trying to help them figure out what projects or, or problem-based solving they're going to do? Like, are you giving them things or are you just simply helping them find things and work around the content and the pedagogy? Tim and I are professional development. We've been doing it for, I uh, can't even remember anymore, 30 years or something. Hey, 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 so, hey, hey. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. I'm older than Tim. So, um, <laughs> so longer, but so like you, I know from my own experience, they don't want you to, they've got their standards and their whatever. And you coming in and saying, nope, you're going to do all this different is going to be a challenge. So I'm assuming you come in and kind of tweak what they have. Meet them where they are. Meet them where they are. That's our mantra. And, you know, there are, as you both know, ample curricula on shelves that you, and in, you know, you can purchase, download, copy, anything. And you might use it. It might sit on the shelf. That doesn't change thinking and that doesn't change instructional practices. And, you know, to really achieve what our mission is, we have to start wherever the teachers and their schools and their communities are on their sustainability journey. So we're working with their curriculum and asking them to reflect on what they're teaching, why they're teaching, and how it relates to what we call the big ideas of sustainability, which are on our website. They're you know these big concepts like interdependence, and systems, cycles, long-term effects. They're basically the foundation, foundational concepts of what creates together sustainable systems, sustainable communities, sustainable ecosystems. And you, I mean, you'd be hard pressed, I think, to find any educator who couldn't find ways to connect what they're doing to these big ideas of sustainability. So that that's what we use in our in our work with schools and and thankfully, you know, they're also pretty easy to see how they're connected to standards whether you're in Houston or <laughs> California. <laughs> so speaking of California, um we had a guest on earlier uh from 10 strands with Karen. Oh Poe. sure. And so I'm assuming they're in environmental literacy but specifically California, but like do you look for uh, other 
organizations or groups that are already doing this work and try to work together to maybe spread your message a little bit more? As often as possible. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, in any nonprofit space, the more you can collaborate, the more impactful and efficient we can be. Um, that being said, there are, you know, some states that are easier to do that in than others. And as you guys know, K-12 curriculum in, in our country is pretty state specific, right? So even if there are states that have adopted next-gen science standards, in most cases, the each particular state has an adapted version of them. Tweaked it. Yeah. 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 Um, Good or bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that leads me to my uh, next question. You started this in 2003 and sustainability, as you said, was you know not really on the radar for very many people. Obviously, that's changed. How is the change in the administration of our country um, impacting your work? Or, or does it? I mean, I would imagine it would. Yeah. And, and we anticipate that it will for the better. Given this past year, their focus has been understandably elsewhere. <laughs> right. What could that be? And so, <laughs> so their support of schools has been, again, understandably on PPE and making sure that students and families are safe. And um, But that being said, sort of looking at the next administration in, in the ed department, we know that there's going to be support and probably has been already just not as publicly known as we anticipate it will be once schools are back. And by the way, all the things that they've been striving to do to support these schools are things that really underscore what makes sustainable communities and what makes what makes schools sustainable. Um, because it's really based in community and community communications, community collaboration, you know, really getting at the core of what makes communities functional is, um, you know, respecting and understanding multiple perspectives. It's a huge part of sustainability. Um, all, you know, the, the biggest issues of the past year have really brought to light and surfaced these, these parts of our society that if we don't change, will will lead to collapse. And I think that kids in particular see that. And the the teachers who sort of are the self-selected ones who see sustainability as as what can motivate and inspire and bring youth voices to the forefront of these issues are the ones who are helping, you know, with other community members, parents alike. You know, it's not an agenda. It's really like understanding what will help these societies sort of get back on track and get through what we are seeing as a as a funnel right now, um, where everything is just compressed and people are feeling pressed and suppressed for all kinds of reasons. And schools for so long have been, you know, sort of areas of safety for people and for, for students and families. And there's so many aspects of the work that we do that I think can help regenerate that aspect of what schools are and can be. As a special offer to our 180 Days podcast listeners, 
The Self Foundation is offering a 50% discount on their Summer Institute using the promotion code 180DAYS. You can find out more about the Summer Institutes by going to selfeducation.org. That's C-E-L-F-E-D-U-C-A-T-I-O-N dot org. If you find their programs and their annual Summer Institute, you will get all the information you need. And if you register, you will get, again, a 50% off registration fee using the promotion code 180DAYS. That's all one word. That will get you a 50% discount as a thank you for listening to this episode. I want to ask you, this actually goes back to something you said in your initial description. Um, You talked about the work of your organization being not just in terms of creating and helping find content, but there was also a pedagogical piece. So what did you mean by a pedagogical piece to your work when you work with teachers in schools? Yeah, so um, we have sort of combined these three pedagogical approaches to instruction. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with project-based learning, place-based education, and probably problem-based learning. And for the programs that we lead both over the summer and during the year, we use what we call the P3 framework to help guide teachers in thinking about what, what are the essential questions that surround a particular lesson or a unit. And what are the places that are impacted or that could be used as context for teaching? What is a project that the students can complete to support their learning? And then what is the problem that's being identified or addressed by this particular lesson or unit? So those are the you know educational approaches to instruction. And I guess in... In other terms, it's experiential learning and applied learning. Also, you know, action research is a big component of sustainability education. And most teachers that come through all of our programs have experience in one, at least one of those areas. And they often just, you know, are really keen to, to work deeper in one or more of those areas. So, and then there are others that have absolutely no background in project-based learning or place-based education. So the work that we do with them is really focused on developing those practices and feeling comfortable and confident in getting their kids either out of the classroom, that's you know sometimes really challenging, or thinking about projects as ways of both demonstrating learning, but also retaining learning. Um, they're all kinds of learners out there. And obviously some learn better by doing than by listening or writing. Um, so addressing the different learner types is, is another thing that I, that sustainability addresses and is, I think, a great way to engage all learners in you know, the capacity to absorb and retain information. So Project-based learning, place-based learning, all of that obviously connects to where they live. So those principles you can apply no matter where they are, but I would imagine that you are helping them or supporting them to find projects that are specific to their community, right? So you're not coming in with, here's this project you're going to do. It's more, go find a project, and now let's help you figure out how to integrate that into all these different disciplines. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Okay. And that's what makes it powerful because sure. they, you know, it's, it, it's inquiry based. And so that means the kids come up with the ideas or the teacher and the students come up with these ideas together because they are living in the same place. And so air pollution, I'll just use that as an example because it's part of our current civic science program. Air pollution is something that impacts almost every community that we've been working with, whether it's in New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Houston, California. It's amazing how far we've come in our country through the Clean Air Act in terms of reducing air pollution. And yet we still have air pollution that is creating record rates of asthma. And asthma in children creates a whole host of systemic issues. So everything from, you know, healthcare bills to absenteeism to impaired learning. So just looking at that topic from the lens of health is in itself somewhat devastating. But it's also something that, you know, is invisible. And so is often overlooked as a topic of exploration. So what we've done through the civic science program is two things. One is to bring in technology, which kids love. (laughs) Um, You know, we have partnered with a couple of different companies that have portable air quality monitors that the kids can take out into their neighborhoods, into their communities that give them real-time data on PM 2.5 and PM 10 and that you know they can download to their tablet or laptop or iPhone and see exactly when those things spike. And then the data used in mathematics. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's exciting. So would you say, because you know, equity is the big, you know, buzzword these days in education. And it seems to me that these types of programs or project-based learning, but around sustainability are going to be a very equitable type of learning because they're looking at their own community and maybe they're realizing that, wow, this particular issue really impacts my neighborhood because we have less income or something like that. So things like that, are just making them more aware of things like that, how that impacts where they live, how they live. Yeah. And that that's what I was going to say is this, the second component of this program is 100% focused on that. And, and that's when kids really get engaged is when they understand and see what the inequities are in terms of where the air quality is better, where the air quality is worse, and why that is. Sure. So it really unpacks in an authentic way how things have been designed, why things are the way they are, and what they can do about it as or as a member of the community. And leading up from their data collection and analysis and um, thinking through just some of the most incredible solutions that they come up with on their own to remediate poor air quality, the culminating capstone is this student symposium where they all come together. And this year, it'll be a virtual symposium. So it can be, you know, it will be students from Houston, from um, New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York all sharing their findings and their solutions. And that I think is one of the best parts of this program because they're not only sharing it with each other, with their teachers, their parents and community members, but there will be legislators and local decision makers 
and departments of health who are listening to these students present their findings. And these are kids as young as fifth grade, you know, all the way up through high school, taking their findings and including them in these open source platforms that that they use in the real world to help them to help guide policy and to help guide the decisions that, you know, are being impacted by data that these students are collecting. So there's something very powerful for the kids to be acknowledged by these adult decision makers at the end of a semester. Well, and that's also sort of the ultimate goal, isn't it? That they become aware and then their awareness makes, you know, the community aware. And hopefully that then leads to change on a community level type of thing. And, you know, if you think about it, you're probably creating some new generation of people who are going to be out there and advocate, you know? So that's, that's again, another side benefit of these types of learning opportunities. Absolutely. Yep. And, and some of them have um, very publicly. There's one of our partners is Young Voices for the Planet that was created by the author Lynn Cherry. And some of the young people who have been become part of her video series are out there, you know, they're like Greta Thunbergs um, who are you know, speaking on behalf of their communities at various events across the country. Jasa is the name of a young young woman who was part of the Young Voices uh, for the Planet group and spoke at our Summer Institute last year. And I have to tell you, there is just nothing more powerful than hearing from a young person who has not only experienced some of these issues firsthand as a result of unjust community design and economic factors um, as well, but to hear them so articulate and know exactly um, who and how to speak with about these topics is is really, I think, encouraging for the next generation and for being in this field for so long and seeing how it's it's really just blossomed is amazing. Sure, absolutely. I'm curious, have you had more success with the K-12 public area in schools or with charters? I would imagine charters have a bit more flexibility than the public. Charters and independent schools absolutely have more flexibility. But we've, because I will say, largely due to drivers from funding sources, we have been working with more public schools than with private schools, um, in, at least in recent years. A lot of the funding that we get from foundations and from some corporate um, sponsors are directed to supporting public education. And so for that reason, we've been really focused on that. And frankly, that just makes our job easier when we do get the opportunity to work with privates and charter schools, because you're starting from sort of the hardest place <laughs> um, and, and working within you know, that more, slightly more confined box enables you to really feel creative when you're out of the box. Um, But private schools have been in this space a lot longer than most public schools. I would say, you know, independent schools have, um, have been pursuing sustainability for a long time. In fact, I remember the cover of um, independent school magazine was all about sustainability. in I want to say the year 2005. So 
that's the early adopter sector of K-12 in our country. And I think that's true for most topics as well. And again, it's just because of the less constraints, less federal sure. you know, stipulations, those types of things. Exactly. Exactly. But all right. And I know we're wrapping up because unfortunately, these are the days when I actually have to go. But I do have one question that's on an entirely different topic, but I'm intrigued and wondering if you would share you have, you have a great story in terms of how you came to have a great passion uh, for sustainability education and then made the decision at some point to start a nonprofit. So my question is more of a meta question for other folks out there who are in similar situations where their story has led them to create a great passion to want to spread and provide that assistance. How do you do it? Like you decided you're going to start a nonprofit. What's your advice to someone who has a passion for a topic such as this? Oh, you have to find the right people to be around you. <laughs> you can't do it by yourself. It's so important to, you know, sort of build out and identify who's going to be in this initial group that launches the idea. It's it's one thing to be the individual who has the idea, but I, you know, I stand on the shoulder of others. Um, so if you're just starting a nonprofit, you have to think about what that means in terms of a board and who should be on the board and who's going to help you with bylaws and where, who's going to be your lawyer. You know, I mean, there are some real practical and fundamental questions that go along with that. And it's not impossible, but there's, there's definitely, it's easier if you are working with someone who's been through developing a nonprofit or has at a minimum been on the board of a not-for-profit. Not for me, it was, it was all new. And so it took maybe a little bit longer than for someone else who, who has had more experience in the nonprofit world. But I will say, you know, when, when you're adamant about something and as tenacious as I was, you will get through, <laughs> you will get through and figure it out. But I would say, you know, also with communicating an idea that isn't necessarily something that resonates with who you hope it would resonate with immediately, then it's really important to understand your audience and to recognize when it's time to shift the way you're messaging. And that's what I got from my marketing background. Um, so, you know, I can attribute that aspect of success to having learned from working in an agency, just how important it is to understand your audience and, and re-message when it's necessary. You know, I often have talked about being somewhat subversive in ways that we work. And I only mean that in a positive way. I think it's, you know, you have to find the strategy that's going to help open doors and open minds. And sometimes that's not the same conversation that you had with one school two weeks ago. Maybe it's very different. Maybe you're not even talking about sustainability. Maybe you're talking straight up STEM. And then that conversation takes a turn and you start talking about, well, what is the purpose of STEM? And what do you want to get from that STEM project? And what do you want your kids to learn? And is it more than just, you know, stacking blocks or that 3D printer project, maybe there's something that would contribute to the health of your community or just to the well-being of your classroom. You know, I would say those are those are some important things is know your people and, and know that you're going to have to change your messaging. Amen. 
So if somebody's listening to this episode and they're like, wow, I'm really interested in getting sustainability, you know, ideas, project-based learning in my school, what's the best way to get some information? Your website or can you direct them somewhere? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. First, come to the website for sure. Um, Which we will provide the link. Don't worry. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, if they are interested in getting started right away, the next best thing to do if you're a teacher or an administrator is sign up for one of our summer institutes. We have three and they're all virtual this year. They are a combination of synchronous and asynchronous work. And I will assure and promise that the synchronous work is not dull. It is fun and exciting. People who've been on the screen all year long, I promise you, you will not be bored. <laughs> um, we've, we've found some amazing new platforms to do the work virtually. So no matter where you are in this country or another country, as long as the time zone isn't too far off, any teacher or administrator in K-12 private or public schools is welcome to join us for the Summer Institute. If you're a parent, it's a great place, you know, on the, again, on the website, start reading some of the case studies that we have because we have a broad variety. So we have stories from rural schools, from urban schools, from suburban schools, just to start getting ideas of who might be involved in helping to make this transformation. So we talk about, you know, every stakeholder group from students to parents to facility managers and cafeteria workers and librarians. And I think it's really inspiring and sometimes sparks ideas about where to start. Um, I do want to end on a, on a shout out to Texas because there are definitely advocates that we've been working with there. And they too recognize how important languages and messaging and, and really looking at creative ways of bringing environmental literacy into into their work and especially in Houston where they are they're hit so hard by these environmental disasters you know from hurricanes so they're on it and you know I think that again it's really about knowing your audience and and how to work with them and we've found some of the most amazing teachers and administrators there and, and the kids are you know, they're on it too. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be there. Well said. I'm just glad they want you there. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> all right. I will make sure we have all those links in our show notes. And thank you again, Katie and Tim for this fun conversation. And make sure you follow us on our social media, Twitter, Facebook, and check out our website, 180days.education and sign up for our newsletter. And we will let you know when Wait, I don't even know what I'm saying. I was going to say, we'll let you know when this episode comes out, but that doesn't make any sense because they're listening to the episode. So we cut that one out, Quinn. All right, so I'm just going to end. It's just the easiest way to do it. We're over. We're done. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Katie. You were great. There will always be those who scoff at intellectuals, who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.